Genesis chapter 18. Genesis uh, chapters 18 and 19 are part of a much larger narrative that we've been studying. They're like, uh, these two chapters are like scenes in a movie about Abraham and Sarah. Um, we just think of the book as a whole. The first 11 chapters were sweeping chapters that moved over hundreds of years. And then when we came to chapter 12, all of a sudden God slowed down because he wants us to get to know these two very important people. Abraham and Sarah are a very important couple in the Bible. And so God has slowed down. And so if you just think about from chapter 12 all the way through to where we're at now and it's going to keep going, it's all about Abraham and Sarah. So uh, last Sunday, Alex taught um, chapter 17 that circumcision became a sign of the covenant. Uh, so just think about what this is. It's a sign of the covenant between God and his people. It's a sign of the inward circumcision of our heart. It is a sign of the righteousness that God's people possess through faith. Now, whose righteousness is it that we possess? It's certainly not our own. It's Christ's. When he was on the cross, our sins were imputed to him. And by faith, his righteousness is imputed to us. And so this is a very important distinction for us to remember as we're going through these chapters because there's a lot of language about the righteous and the wicked in these next few chapters. And so we want to remember that the righteous are only those who have been redeemed. It's only those who have uh, placed their faith in God um, for their salvation. In the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the cross. You and I are looking back at the cross. But ultimately, it is our Savior and His righteousness. And so uh, the righteous means those people who have placed their faith in Christ. You know... Uh, just because you're uh, from Israel or you're a Hebrew and even circumcised did not mean that you were one of the righteous. Circumcision is, a, is an outward picture of something that's inside. That inward circumcision of the heart when a person places their faith in God and they trust in Him in all respects. And so uh, this brings us to chapter 18 and uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says the then the Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, uh, which while he was sitting in, at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. And he looked up and he saw three men standing near him. And when he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them and he bowed to the ground. Then he said, my Lord, I have found favor. Uh, if I have found favor in your sight, please do not go past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why I have passed. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later you can continue on. Well, yes, they replied, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and he said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Meanwhile, Abraham ran to the herd and he got a tender choice calf. And he gave it to a young man who, he, who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set them before the men and he served them as they ate under the tree. 
Where's your wife Sarah, they asked him. Well, there in the tent, he answered. And the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. After all I have, after I have become shriveled up and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Well, Sarah denied it, and I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. Well, this occurs at Abraham's home in Hebron, which is near Jerusalem. It's a stand of trees where his home is at. And uh, their sudden appearance, these, these three men's sudden appearance begins to uh, define the nature of this visit, this very special visit. It said there in verse 2 that he looked up and he saw three men standing near him. So this gives us the impression that all of a sudden there they were. And so we see his reaction. Now, we already know that one of the three people is God. We know that from verse 1. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham, that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, means Yahweh. So this is God himself, and he's with two other people that look like men. There's two other men with him. Now, uh, in verse 10, he begins to speak. Uh, verse 10, then the Lord said, you see, so one of these three people is God, but we know it's not God the Father. John chapter 1, verse 18 says that no one has ever seen God, the one and the only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. And so, uh, remember, just show us the Father, just Lord, just show us the Father, it will be enough. And He said, have you been with me so long that you would say, show me the Father? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. He is the image of deity in bodily form. Jesus is how we know who God is and what he looks like and how he moves and thinks. And so Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. And so he is present there among these two other people. Well, we're going to find out in verse uh, 1 of chapter 19 that the other two are angels. And so Abraham is being visited in the heat of the day while well, he's in the shade of this trees, by God himself, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of, of God, it's Jesus and these two angels. Well, we see that Abraham ran to them, he bowed to the ground, he referred to himself to them as their servant. Uh, he brings them water to wash their feet and he asks them to stay. And then they said, okay, we'll stay. And then Abraham did something that I completely relate to it says, then he hurried into the tent to Sarah. <laughs> so I guarantee as the first thing I, I say, you're going to stay, okay? Then I would run as fast as I could to find Julie. I say, Julie! You know, so this is exactly what he did. And so she began to uh, prepare a meal. And Abraham went to, to find a, a, a tender choice calf and had it prepared. And so they brought milk and brought a very nice meal to these men. And then it tells us that uh, 
he stood while they ate, and he served them while they ate. It's interesting that angels were eating, isn't it? They're going to eat again in chapter 19. And, you know, Abraham has spoken to God before, hasn't he? And there's no indication that he, this was the same, looked the same as he had other times, and, you know, we can get all crazy with all of that. But you can see by the way Abraham is acting that he realizes something very unique is happening here. He surely suspects. And uh, then the hair on the back of his neck just has to have stood up because they said, where's your wife Sarah? Well, she's inside the tent. And we find out that Sarah's listening, but she's out of view. They can't see her. She can't see them, but she can hear them. And so when she hears God in verse 10 say that this time next year your wife is going to have a son, she laughs, but she laughs to herself. And she thinks to herself, really? You know, God doesn't miss a thing, does he? He knows our every thought. And so you can just picture what was happening. You know, Abraham's sitting there serving these men. They're eating, and, and God tells Abraham this. And then he says, why, why did your wife laugh? Why did Sarah laugh? Abraham's probably like, uh, I don't know, but she uh, shouldn't have, you know. But um, now Hebrews 11 verse 12 tells us that God uh, on purpose waited until this couple was past the childbearing age. He did that on purpose. So the whole time they were trying to have a child, it never happened, and then now it's just too late. We did that on purpose. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 12. And in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us, the verse before that, it tells us that Sarah also possessed the righteousness that Abraham possessed, the righteousness of God through faith. She was also a very strong believer, so we don't want to be too hard on Sarah, but we don't want to be too easy on her either. Verse 11 in, chapter Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter of faith, it says that Sarah believed God's promise. So this was a very important day for Sarah. What an important day. Because God said, is anything too impossible for me? Is there anything that's too impossible for the Lord? There in verse 14. And then in verse 16. It says, the men got up from there and they looked out over Sodom. And we remember when Lot and Abram were surveying the land and Lot looked at the Jordan Valley. He chose the Jordan Valley. So this is what they're doing. They're looking out over this land. The men, they got up from eating and, and they looked out over Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. And then the Lord said, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham is to become a great powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will, will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he's promised him. So then the Lord said, this is to Abraham, he says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. 
and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. Verse 22, so the men turned from there and they went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And Abraham stepped forward and he said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You cannot possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You cannot possibly do that. Won't the judge of all the earth do what is just? And so the Lord said, if it's Sodom, I find 50 righteous people in the city. I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham answered, since I ventured to speak to the Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Then he spoke to him again, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Let the Lord not be angry and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. I will not do it if I find 30. Well, since I ventured to speak to the Lord, suppose 20 are found there. I will not destroy it on account of 20. Well, let the Lord not be angry. I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Well, this little passage here begins in verse 16 with Abraham walking with them to see them off after the meal. And that reminds me of how... Um, <clears throat> it's kind of a... It's kind of a custom we have at our home as we walk our visitors out to the driveway and we watch them drive away. If you come to our house, you're not going to say goodbye and the door is going to close and you walk to your car by yourself and leave. It's not going to happen. We just don't do that. Um, I'm not saying it's never happened, but um, we value people that come to see us so much. And uh, um, reminds me of when the men from Ephesus came to Miletus to see Paul and they, they walked him to the ship. Abraham was um, treasuring this time he was having with them. And then there's this interesting discussion back and forth between God and the angels. And he says, uh, you know, should I tell Abraham what we're getting ready to do? And I know that Gene ended with Kepler in Sunday school. <laughs> Took a little bit different turn on it, but as he was doing that, I was thinking of that passage in Amos that we were looking at this morning, you know, that God reveals his thoughts to man. And so here's God talking to these angels, and he's saying, hmm, should I tell Abraham? And so we're literally watching God explaining to the angels why he is deciding to tell Abraham. It's very interesting. And then we see God explaining to Abraham why he has decided to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities of the plain. He 
He says that their outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. And so we see God weighing the decision of the cry that's arising from their, their sins and his justice. What is just? What is the right thing for me to do? Now, obviously, God does not wring his hands over such things, but it's presented to us in such a way for our benefit so that we can appreciate God's mind. We can appreciate how much he cares about balancing all things. Well, it tells us there uh, that there's a, there's a fork in the road where Abraham stays with God and the, and the two angels leave. And so they depart for the valley while God stays there with Abraham. And, and he begins to say, you know, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You couldn't possibly do such a thing to, to kill the righteous with the wicked and to treat the righteous as you would treat the wicked. The same way. You couldn't possibly do that, could you? And so this barter moves from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. which is very telling to us. It tells, tells us a couple of, it probably tells us a whole bunch of things, but the two that stood out to me was that God may actually preserve the wicked for the sake of the righteous. That if he could find 10 righteous there, he would spare that city. Doesn't matter how many there are, really, to God does it. You know, and, and we're gonna find out that part of this barter didn't really involve Lot. Um, God did not find 10 in that whole plane. He didn't find 10. And so he didn't make an agreement with Abraham that he wouldn't wipe out the righteous there that was under 10. But we're going to find out that he doesn't. That his kids are in there and he goes and gets them out first. So this tells us that we are very important to God. Very important. It made me think of the flood. You know, God rescued his remnant. It makes me think here in Sodom and Gomorrah when he rescues his remnant. It makes me wonder about the great tribulation. Romans 3.10 tells us, tells us that. I will keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole world to all those who live on the earth. Well, as we look down on this plane, and we've studied this before, we've, we've, as we've moved through Genesis, we know that this is a, a very fertile valley. It's the land that Lot chose for himself, and that there are at least five major cities that live down there in this valley. And uh, we know that Lot lives there. Now, just to remind ourselves of who Lot is, Abraham's dad was Terah. And so Terah had three boys, Nahor, Haran and Abram. And Haran had a son named Lot. And so Lot is Abram's cousin. Okay? Uh, Genesis chapter 11. Um, and we know that when Lot picked, picked this land, uh, we see a progression. In chapter 13, verse 12, we are told that, that Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. And then when the, when the big war happened, we remember there was a big battle between four Mesopotamian kings and the five kings of this Jordan Valley. Remember that big war? When this happens, we find out that, Ad, that Lot is now dwelling inside of Sodom. And when we get to chapter 19, we're going to find out that not only has he pitched his tent towards Sodom, not as he actually moved into the city, but now he is sitting at the gate. 
And that is a very uh, important statement because it tells us that he is a city official. And so he has, he has arisen to a place of importance in this area um, that we don't have too many good things to say anything about. And we're going to find out uh, as we move into chapter 19 that not everyone in Lot's family is righteous. You know, uh, not everybody that goes to church on Sunday morning is righteous. Now, I'm not righteous. There's not a thing about me that's righteous at all. But I have put my faith in Christ. And so his righteousness has been imputed to me. It's uh, my sins have been paid for in full because of the blood he shed for me. And so when I refer to myself as being one of the righteous, that's what I'm talking about. I'm one of the elect. I'm one of the few that he has chosen to rescue from the fire. And I'm very thankful for that. Right? Well, when we look at Lot's family, you know, when you think of your family, you may think of people in your family that really just don't go to church much, or they, when they talk about God, it's kind of a, ambiguous what they really believe, but they say they believe in God, or... You know, you just don't really know. And so they're such good people that you give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, we find out in chapter 19 that Lot's family was not righteous. There was just a few of them. We're going to watch Abraham. He's going to be looking out of the valley as a black smoke ascends into the sky like a furnace. There weren't even ten there. You know, at, uh, this impending doom it reminds me of um, how the police will do like an undercover investigation on someone for maybe a year, maybe longer, and the people they're investigating have no idea. And there's going to come a point when uh, things have came to a head and they're going to make the arrests. We're not going to do anything any further. Sometimes it's because somebody's been murdered or somebody's going to be murdered or whatever. But some things move our hands, the police's hands, and they decide to do a search warrant and round everybody up. And they, uh, they do it by surprise, don't they? And so uh, the night before, there's a lot of people that know what's getting ready to happen. This is what we're seeing here. We want to remember Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, probably one of the greatest books in the entire world. It's one of the best books in the Bible. It's one of my favorites, obviously. But um, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. This is important for us to remember because God is showing us that He is weighing things and His willingness to spare an entire valley just for the sake of ten elect. And in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, it says that I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. That's the heart of God. So now we're going to read uh, chapter 19. There's no kids in here. So. The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at Sodom's gate. When Lot saw them... He got up to meet them. He bowed down with his face to the ground and he said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house. Wash your feet and spend the night. Then you can get up, on, get up early and, and go on your way. No, uh, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. And he prepared a feast. And he baked unleavened bread of all things for them. And they ate. 
And before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. Well, Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him and he said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't had sexual relations with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said. This one came here as a foreigner. He's acting like a judge. Now we will do more harm to you than to them. And they put pressure on Lot and they came up to break down the door. But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the door of the house, both young and old, with a blinding light so that they were unable to find the door. So I guess that means they were still trying to find it. Then the angel said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your daughters, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out, and he spoke to his son-in-laws, who were going to marry his daughters. He said, get out. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his son-in-laws thought he was joking. At the crack of dawn, the angels urged Lot on, get up. Take your wife and your daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So because the Lord's compassion for him... The men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and they brought them out of the city, brought them out, and left him outside the city. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, Run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, Lord, please. Your servant has indeed found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, this town is close enough for me to run to. I can imagine they're pointing to it. He's saying, uh, it is a small place. Please let me go there. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, all right, I'll grant, you your, I'll grant your request about this matter too. and will not overthrow the town you mentioned. Hurry up, run there, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zor. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zor. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the sky. He overthrew, overthrew these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. But his wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain. And he saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So it was. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. As I said here, uh, the two angels entered Sodom in the very beginning of this chapter. And, a, and they find Lot sitting at the gate. That means he is a city official. Uh, and he is uh, 
had to strongly persuade them to spend the, not to spend the night in the square. So I think we can see why. Um, so there's a feast that's prepared, and after they ate, but before they went to the bed, went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. Send them out so that we can have sex with them. Now, obviously, these two men would not have survived such a thing. We saw that in Judges chapter 19 when we studied that. You might remember a man and his concubine stopped in Gibeah for the night. And the home of the man they were staying in was surrounded by the perverted men of the city, as how it says. They were wanting to have sex with him. And the concubine was turned over to them. And she did not survive. These two men would not have survived if they were mere men. So Lot steps outside to reason with them. Uh, and he tells them that their plan is evil. But then he offers his two virgin daughters. And he's acting judge for the city. Uh, the square there at the gate, that means that he was probably overseeing business transactions, financial, financial and judicial disputes, and so he was a judge. But he wasn't from there. He was a Hebrew, and they knew it. And so he was a foreigner. And so they mock him for his hypocrisy. You're saying what we're wanting to do is evil, but you'll give us your two daughters. And so they mock him. And then they decide to turn their desires on him as well. I think one point there is that the world knows when we're not one of them. I have friends at work, but I know that they resent things about me. I know they resent some of the things I believe. I know they resent some of the things I do not approve of. I know they do. And I'm invited to go do things with them, and I could. And the truth is, is I could cozy up to them as much as I could possibly be, but I will never be one of them. But as believers, sometimes we try to do that, don't we? Well, if Lot didn't realize that these were angels yet, at this point they had to. When he pulls Lot back in, shuts the door, blinds the mob with, with bright lights, obviously, obviously that's, uh, that's supernatural. And so they knew they were with angels now. And so the angels began to explain to them that we have came here, sent here by God to destroy this city. We've got to go. And so they ask him, is there anybody else besides the, your two daughters and, your, and you and your wife? Is there anybody else? And so Lot starts to talk about his family. And this is interesting, isn't it? Because it means that angels are not omniscient. They don't know all things. They didn't know if Lot had anybody else. They were dependent upon Lot to, Lot to tell them. And so then, of course, we see Lot going to them and, and trying to reason with his family. But they weren't going to listen to him. He goes out there, he tries to round him up. Now, I don't know if this is a reflection upon Lot as a, a bad spiritual leader for his family or, or not. But, um, you know, when people are, when the rubber hits the road, you know, you do evaluate who's speaking to you. And uh, we've talked about what it means to put your faith in God. You know, you evaluate who He is. You make a choice that you, 
trust him and think he's able to accomplish what he's saying. And so uh, I can think of some, some church leaders that I personally wouldn't follow into Chuck E. Cheese. So uh, anyway, so at, at daybreak, the angels urged Lot. So this, so this goes on all night. They finally got to their wit's end. The sun's starting to come up, and they're still urging Lot, you have got to go. If you don't, you're going to be swept away, just like everybody else. You have to run for your lives. And so they eventually grab them by their hands. And what a picture. What a picture, you know. They could not do it until they got them out. What a picture. Um, sometimes we get dragged, dragged away by God kicking and screaming. But we're still as kids. What a picture. And Lot didn't think he could make it to the mountains, and so they let him stay in this little village. And then in verse 26, out of the sky, the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, but his wife, she looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So this judgment reveals to us the balance that God plays in, in balancing mercy and justice. But it also shows us that he does have limits. Things can only go for so far. Um, when Lot first chose this valley to live in, in chapter 13, verse 13, it tells us that at that point, Sodom was already a mess. And it said that the things that the men were doing there, this is a quote, were exceedingly wicked. But God didn't lower the boom yet, did he? Quite a, time, quite a bit of time's passed. So you see that God has limits. At, you know, don't mistake my kindness for weakness, that kind of a thing. You know, sometimes we think that God is a pushover, but he's not. Um, we remember in a prophecy in chapter 15 when he was talking to Abraham, he said that, you know, you guys, your descendants are going to end up in Egypt as slaves. But when they finally get back, you know, um, that that is when the the full measure has has uh, of the Amorites has came in, so uh, the the sins of the Amorites are going to be crying out to me. That's when I'm going to do this. It's a prophecy. It's hundreds of years into the future. It just shows us that God has His limits, but He does weigh mercy and justice. And uh, you know, um, when we think about America, um, you know, the, the laziness. Uh, the theft, the violence. The mockery of his rainbow, gay parades, drag queens, story time for children. What must God be thinking? You know, do we really think that this isn't going to come to fruition at some point that we can just keep doing this, our country? Well, uh, underneath this, uh, this whole area are the, are the Arabian and African tectonic plates, right under this whole region. And so it's very seismic. There's a lot of earthquakes in, in Israel in this area. Uh, there's a great rift that runs all the way underneath this Jordan Valley. It runs underneath the Dead Sea. It runs underneath the Red Sea. It runs up through Upper Nile and Africa. And so this is a very unstable land. It's a very unstable place. Um, we remember when those Mesopotamian kings attacked the five kings of this valley in that big fight, and those five kings lost. And remember, many of them were falling, falling into tar pits. Remember? Now, uh, I've been told that the whole area has got a lot of hydrocarbon bitumen. And I know about as much about that as I do uh, 
brain surgery, but uh, it's apparently very flammable, very combustible. And so this whole area is a powder keg. You know, um, it's like San Francisco. And that, 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 that fault that runs uh, all up through there, and uh, it's a powder keg. Just waiting to happen. And so when, when fire came down, it was like throwing a match on a big brush pile that was soaked with gasoline. What a picture. A lot of, I, a lot of archaeology, trying to find these cities. Um, the Dead Sea itself is like 40 miles long and 10 miles wide. And on the north end, it's very deep. In some places, 1,400 feet deep, almost a mile deep in places. But on the, on the south end, it's only 10 or 20 feet deep. And the belief is, is that the silting has rose in the water levels. And so some of these cities may have actually be underneath the water now, submerged. But they are excavating, build, they are excavating homes there, houses and, and cities, um, uh, huge cemeteries, some of them holding 500,000 people buried there. Uh, so this was a thriving metropolis at one point. Um, I think of Abraham standing above that hill and looking over at that forest. What a, what a picture of hell this is. What a picture of hell. Fire, sulfur, people screaming, no one is escaping, black plumes of smoke, tar pits rising into the sky. I'm going to close with this, and I know we've went over our time, and I can't possibly have three pages of notes here. <laughs> I went way too much, I, I know, but um, I want to close with this. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah becomes the benchmark for what's so bad that God finally brings judgment. And uh, because the bar is set so low, that we think, well, as long as we're not in some kind of angry, you know, sex mob, you know, I guess we're okay. You know, we think if we're not as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah, we're good. But the truth is, is that throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, God makes multiple references to Sodom and Gomorrah and makes many theological arguments, um, even in, in the book of Amos in chapter 4. Sodom and Gomorrah was again mentioned. It's in Isaiah, it's in Ezekiel, it's throughout the Bible, it's multiple times in the New Testament. And I think that, you know, when God evaluates things, we might be surprised because um, in Ezekiel chapter 33, we talked, uh, we read uh, Ezekiel 33, 11, where God does not take pleasure in uh, the death of the wicked. He begins to talk about how comparing Jerusalem with Sodom and Gomorrah. Jerusalem and her babies, her little cities that are, Jerusalem's the, the mother and all of the other cities of the country. Sodom is the mother and all of her little country. He says that Sodom and Jerusalem are sisters. You're acting just like them, actually worse. And then many sins are, are described. It's not just the, the perversions of, of, of these fellows. It was things like being proud, lazy, Affluent, but not helping the needy. Adultery. A lot of things there. Reminds us that God looks at things differently than we do. He says, 
in verse 48, it says, Your sister Sodom and her daughters have not behaved as you and your daughters have. They didn't act as bad. In Jeremiah, Among the prophets of Jerusalem also I saw a horrible thing. They commit adultery and they walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of the evildoers and none turns his back on evil. They are like Sodom to me. Jerusalem's residents are like Gomorrah. There's a whole bunch. One in closing. This is Jesus. And you'll remember when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth and they ran him off. They were in the, what happened in the temple, in the synagogue. And uh, that did not go well. The incredible message he gave. Uh, just a few short words and what that meant to that crowd and that synagogue. And uh, He moved his camp to Capernaum. You remember, and when we studied the Gospel of Mark, we, we spent some time in Capernaum, you know. Um, but they didn't believe in Jesus either. Matthew chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Let's pray.